I want to invite you this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Colossians. We've been in the book of Colossians now for several weeks. And I had mentioned leading up to Christmas, I wanted us to uh, study through this book because uh, in the book of Colossians, Paul is talking to the church and to us about having no other substitutes for Christ. We do not need to add anything to what Jesus did for us at Calvary's cross. Amen? Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are complete. And we have the assurance of being reconciled to God, and we have that heavenly hope. Uh, there were people in Paul's day, as there are people in our day, that want to add something to the gospel. You can't add anything to the gospel. And so we returned our series this morning. We'll be in chapter 2. Now, last week, some had asked about the message. You wanted a copy of it or you wanted to hear it again. I preached a message having to do with the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I just simply want to remind you, you can go on the church website each week. And there is a section there. If you want to listen again, you can listen again. If you want to point somebody uh, to that link, you can listen to the message that I preached last week out of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The passage that gripped Martin Luther's heart. He came to Christ through studying that passage. And of course, we know that through him nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg, the Protestant Reformation was kicked into high gear. So you can hear that message. But today we're returning to our series on the book of Colossians. So find chapter 2. Uh, Paul is continuing his admonition to the church. He's been explaining to them in chapter 1 about Christian ministry. We looked at a, a closer look at authentic Christian ministry as Paul spoke at the end of chapter 1 about his ministry toward them. He continues that in chapter 2. Now, we're going to try to at least overview-wise cover the whole chapter, but at least more in-depth the first 15 verses. So stand together with me and let's read together verses 1 to 15. Paul says, therefore, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." 
And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father, we're so grateful today for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, as we relate to this culture that we are a part of, help us to be salt and light. Give us courage to speak to men and women and boys and girls about our faith in Jesus and how he's changed us. And how we have salvation in and through him alone. Lord, we live in such a confused age. So help us to be salt and light. And now, God, I pray that you would teach us from your word. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16. That the Holy Spirit would be to us a teacher and a counselor. And he would reveal to us those things that we need to understand. And so we ask that that you would do that this morning. God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that we would see Jesus. Because indeed, Jesus is all we need. It's all about him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stability. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told a story, a parable that has to do with the stability of a believer and a body of believers. You know the story well. Jesus told a parable about two builders. There was a wise builder and there was a foolish builder. And he said the wise builder was one who got in a hurry and did not give any attention to the foundation he was laying. In fact, he put his foundation on sand. Well, it wasn't long before the storms came. The rainwaters pounded the roof, the wind came against the walls, the floodwaters rose against the foundation, and Jesus said that house collapsed because it had been built upon the sand. Foolish builder. But then he said there's the wise builder who takes time with the foundation. He digs down. He finds the rock. He finds the suitable foundation. He begins his building there. Now his house likewise goes through all the storms of life that the other guy's house went through. The rainwaters fall on the roof. The winds beat against the wall. The floodwaters rise against the foundation. And yet that house stands because it was built upon the rock. Stability. 
Folks, believers must be ready for anything in the world because everything that that unbelievers face in the world, guess what? You and I are going to face the same things. We are not spared the trials and tribulations of life that everybody else goes through. Jesus was aware of this and so repeatedly he prepared his disciples for this. You may remember also what he did in the upper room. In the upper room, Jesus' public ministry is over and he's about to go to the cross. And he said to his disciples that there were some things they needed to be aware of for their stability. He said, you need to be mindful of your relationship with me. You need to abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. You need to be mindful of your relationship to one another. You need to be knit together in love. You need to love one another. And you also need to understand what your relationship to the world is going to be. The world is going to hate you because the servant is not greater than the master. Jesus wanted them to be prepared. He wanted them to be stable. Now folks, it's interesting what the Apostle Paul does here in Colossians chapter 2. He does the very same approach. He, of course, is a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's an apostle of the church, an apostle to the Gentiles, a shepherd of the church of God. And he is wanting to prepare this church, this church at Colossae, for what they are going to be facing in the future and indeed for what they are already facing. Paul knew the importance of a stable church. He knew that storms would come. At Colossae, they are facing storms. They are facing an onslaught of false teachers who are already trying to take them away from the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And so the false teaching is battering against the church like winds against a house. And so Paul gives admonitions to them as to how to grow and remain stable in this world. He gives them a series of admonitions uh, that have to do with their relationship to one another, their relationship to the truth, and their relationship to the world. A good minister of Jesus Christ must be concerned about the stability of the flock. Paul had on one occasion warned the elders of the church at Ephesus that wolves would come in and try to devour the flock. And so a shepherd must constantly be on guard and prepare his people to likewise be on guard. Colossians 2 is the very heart of Paul's letter to them. A letter about false teaching that they are facing. Again, he wants them to be stable and he gives them three admonitions in this chapter. Now, folks, what we see here is that Paul is continuing what he's already been saying about his ministry at the end of chapter 1. We see that one of the roles of a faithful shepherd is that he admonishes his flock in the truth. 
If they will only listen to Paul and respond in faith to Paul, his ministry in their behalf, and put into practice what he says, they will be able to stand strong in this world. And so what is it that he says to them in regards to this? First of all, I want you to see with me this morning that he points out that Christians must be knit together in both truth and love. He begins in verse 1. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Right off, he assures them of his great love for them and his concern for them. Just because Paul has not visited with them face to face does not mean that he doesn't care about them. He loves them and he wants to see them prosper in their faith. I remember what the Apostle John said about this in 3 John verse 4. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. One of the things that characterizes an authentic ministry is a concern that shepherds must have for the flock. Paul is concerned about them. He struggles over them. Now, I take it that his struggle, since he's not seen them face to face, the lion's share of his struggling for them would be his prayers for them. He struggles in prayer for them because he had not established this church. Remember what I told you had happened there? Paul was teaching in Ephesus in the rented hall of Tyrannus, and Epaphras from Colossae made the 100-mile journey over to Ephesus while there, he had heard Paul teaching the gospel Epaphras had gotten saved carried the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae and he had started a church there Epaphras was a church planter and this would mean that the apostle Paul was like their spiritual grandfather As Epaphras has given Paul updates on the church, Paul struggles for them. And he says, I struggle for all of the churches that have not seen me face to face. And I'm praying for you diligently. We saw his prayers for them in chapter 1. And as he struggles in prayer over them, he says that he wants them to be knit together in truth and in love. Folks, in verse 2, when Paul says that their hearts, he's, he's struggling for them, that their hearts may be encouraged. In the biblical sense, the heart was a lot more than just simply this organ inside of your chest. The heart of a man, the heart of a woman stood for the whole person. It stood for the intellect and the will. And so Paul is saying essentially, I want to see you established in the truth. Your whole person established in God's truth. Not only established in the truth, but I want to see you knit together in love. Truth and love. The Christian life must be built upon truth. 
But it's not a cold, dead orthodoxy. It is a warm-hearted love for God and a love for God's children. Now, folks, one thing I noticed through reading the New Testament is how good the early church was at both of these things, truth and love. For example, turn with me a moment over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, because I want you to see how the, uh, the New Testament church, the early church in the book of Acts, set such a model for being knit together in truth and love. Look at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's that? That's truth. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now listen to this, how they were knit together with one another, not only in truth but in love. He goes on to say, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see, in the early church, what happened among the Jews, because when Jews would come to faith in Christ there in Jerusalem specifically, they would be shunned by their families and they may even lose their businesses. And so they would become in destitute. They needed their church family. And so he says here in verse uh, 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They knew what it was like to be knit together in truth and in love. And Paul is saying to the church at Colossae here, that is what I desire for you. As a body of believers who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, placed your faith in Him, you're a new creation in Christ. You need to understand now the corporate nature of your faith together. We need one another. We need to be knit together in truth and in love. That's his first word of admonition to them. Folks, we cannot unravel our lives from one another. Jesus did not save you so that you could then become just some lone ranger Christian who does your own thing. We need one another in the body of Christ. You know, when I think about it, the church is a miracle in and of itself, isn't it? It really is. It's the Lord's doing. There's no doubt. We come from different social backgrounds, different levels of education, different life experiences, sometimes even different countries. And yet when people are knit together in Christian love, it is a powerful witness to the world. Jesus said, all the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. I want you to think about the Gospels. Think about some of the personalities. You have a Mary Magdalene being knit together in faith and love with a Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have a Simon the Zealot 
The zealots were Jewish religious fanatics. They, they hated Rome and anything associated with Rome. You have Simon the zealot who comes to faith in Christ. He's a follower of Jesus right alongside of Matthew the tax collector. Isn't that amazing? When a body of believers is knit, knit together in truth and love, notice what happens. Paul goes on to say here that he desires this for them, that they will attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Underscore that phrase, full assurance of understanding. That they would come to the wealth of the knowledge of that. You know what he's wanting for them? He's wanting them to be fully secure and assured in their faith. What do believers sometimes face? A lack of assurance. New believers especially. We need to be knit together in truth and love with one another, holding one another up, teaching one another, praying for one another, admonishing one another so that there will be the full assurance of faith. It's amazing to me how the Word of God, just different parts of the Word of God fit together like a glove. There's another portion of the Word of God that oftentimes we take new believers to so that they will be filled with the wealth of knowledge of this full assurance of faith. First John. First John's a wonderful book that deals with this full assurance. John gives the church three tests, the belief test. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe God's testimony about the person and work of Christ? If you don't believe God's testimony about the person and work of Christ, you're not a believer. But if you do believe the New Testament witness, God's witness of His Son, you're on your way to full assurance. What about the obedience test? Has what you believe changed your life? That gives you assurance. Third test, love. Do you love the brethren? If you don't love the brethren, you abide in death. But if you love the brethren, that's evidence of a change. You see, John wanted the same thing as Paul. Different personalities, different circumstances, different congregations, different words. But they're wanting the same thing in the congregation, that their congregations would have this wealth of knowledge of the full assurance that they are in Christ. And by their being knit together in truth and love with one another, helping one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another, praying for one another, this will help them. This will help them to be firmly established in the faith. But Paul's not done with the truth element yet. He emphasizes that God's truth is found in Christ. Look with me again at verses 2 and 3. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The false teachers at Colossae are wanting to teach things that have to do with spiritual wisdom and knowledge, but that they want to talk about a, a mystery that only a few elite can understand. Paul says, no, 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 they're, they're wrong. 
I want you to understand that the full treasure house of truth and of God's mystery dwells in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ you are complete. And that's what these false teachers at Colossae are skipping out on. They're thinking there can be wisdom and mystery and all spiritual things apart from Christ. You know, it kind of makes me think a number of years ago, there, there was this guy sometime flipping through the channels. I'd see him. I think he was usually on public TV. I don't think he's on there anymore. But he claimed to be this spiritual guru and he was teaching people supposedly in all, all this truth and wisdom and all that. But, but I noticed by listening to him, at least what I heard, he never ever mentioned Jesus Christ folks run the other way when you hear somebody teaching spirituality but divorcing it apart from Jesus Christ run the other way because the Bible makes it clear spiritual wisdom and, and knowledge in the mystery of God is all uh, contained in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God and we know the mysteries of God. What God, what was hidden through ages past but in the new covenant he's revealed in his son. You want to be spiritual and have your own personal brand of spirituality? Satan says, great, let me help you. Satan does not mind you trying to chase after spiritual knowledge as long as that knowledge ignores and overlooks Jesus Christ. You see, such knowledge makes you feel good. You feel like you're on the right path. You know in your heart that life must be more than just about the physical, what you can see and touch and feel. And so you try to start pursuing all these spiritual things. But if what you are pursuing is not all about Jesus Christ, it is a lie of the devil and you need to run the other way. As Paul says in verse 4 here, there are some slick operators out there. They have their persuasive arguments, their, their plausible uh, arguments that he, that he says here. And because of that, they have their followers. They delude people. They deceive people. Folks, beware. If you go in bookstores like I do and you go over to the spiritual section, most of what you find there will be false. The church today needs discernment. Now, oh sure, what you find about spiritual topics and all, it'll have an element of truth to it. False teaching always has an element of truth to it. If it didn't have an element of truth to it, nobody would be sucked in. And so false teaching has this element of truth. That's the carrot that gets people in. And then they get deceived and deluded. The devil is a slick operator. Paul said to the Corinthians, the devil can even disguise himself as an angel of light. Be careful of what you listen to that claims to be spiritual. If it is not faithful to God's word and if it does not magnify and uplift Jesus Christ, it is false. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You say, that sounds exclusive. It is, but that's not my words. That's Jesus' words. True spirituality, true wisdom, the true treasures of God are found in and through Jesus Christ. We need to be knit together in that truth and loving one another, applying that truth, practicing that truth in the body of Christ, helping one another to walk faithfully. Now Paul gives a second word of admonition. He he points out that Christians are to be firmly established and growing. Look at what he says beginning in verse 6. He says there, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now scholars say when we come to verse 6 of chapter 2, we've now come to the body of the letter. Everything else leading up to this was by way of introduction. From verse 6 of chapter 2 through verse 6 of chapter 4, you come to the heart and the core of the book of Colossians. And in addition to that, this section from 2-6 all the way through 4-6 is filled with commands, with imperatives. There were no imperatives in the letter up until verse 6. But you get to verse 6 here of chapter 2, go through uh, verse 6 of chapter 4. And if my count is correct, there's something like 29 imperatives, 29 commands that Paul is going to give the church at Colossae. Now notice how Paul phrases things. He assumes they have truly received Christ. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus. He assumes they have. What's the need now? He says, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, what's he want them to do? He says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Folks, the emphasis in the New Testament is not simply on the moment of conversion, though of course that's critical. But in the New Testament, it is the walk that gets the emphasis. In fact, the walk can even confirm the authenticity of the beginning. As Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Colossians 1.10, in that great prayer that we looked at that Paul prayed for them, he's prayed that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so he's saying, as you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him. In verse 7, he uses an example out of the world of horticulture. A plant is rooted, which is necessary for growth. But then once it is successfully rooted, the plant is able to grow up and out and bear fruit. It's the same way with Christians. After being rooted in Christ, we can grow and bear fruit. 
And Jesus said in John 15, 8, as we abide in him and bear fruit, he said we, pr we prove ourselves, we show ourselves, we, we show that we really are disciples of Jesus. If we're walking in Christ, we claim to be rooted in him, but if we're walking in Christ and being built up in him and bearing fruit, that is the evidence that the world has to look at and say, you know what, these people really are the real deal. If, if they look at us, if we claim to be uh, in Christ and they don't see any evidence of our Christian faith, then they have a right to think our faith might be suspect. We're to walk in Him and grow and bear fruit. Now, of course, for that to take place, we've got to be rooted. In other words, while the emphasis is on the walk and on bearing fruit, none of that can happen without an authentic beginning in the faith. That's why if somebody tells you, if they say, I have always been a Christian. Have you ever heard that? I have. If they say, I've always been a Christian, that's a pretty good indication in my mind that they've really never been rooted, never been converted. They don't understand the beginning of the Christian life. They don't understand uh, conversion. Conversion is necessary. You've got to be rooted. You've got to be born again. There's got to be a beginning. You're not born a Christian. In fact, the Bible says through our first birth, the physical birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's why Jesus said you've got to be born a second time, the spiritual birth. He told a religious guy that, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. There's got to be a beginning. You've got to be rooted. Yes, the emphasis is on walking, living out your faith. But at the same time, there's got to be the beginning. Do you know that that has happened in your life? Has there been that beginning? These are great verses for these baptismal candidates today. They've entered the baptismal waters, but what they have done today marks the beginning of their journey. It's not the end of their journey where they can sit back and say, hey, now I've arrived. Baptism only symbolizes the beginning of the Christian walk. Now, now, now baptism is not what saves you. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Baptism is your public confession of faith. There's nothing saving about it. Now God expects every believer to be baptized. Don't discount baptism. It's important, but it is confessional, not salvific. Baptism is the gospel in a picture form. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the believer's union with Christ. Your death and burial and resurrection with him. It's, it symbolizes your newness of life in him. And now you're to walk in the newness of life that he gives to you. Baptism is a picture of the gospel in that regard. 
Paul says in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then in verse 7 of our passage today out of Colossians 2, Paul says, Just as you were instructed. Now folks, that is a loaded phrase. What Paul is emphasizing here is that they are to grow in the faith that Epaphras has taught to them. Where did Epaphras get it? From the Apostle Paul. Then he brought it back to Colossae. And so the faith that the Colossians have, the, uh, the faith that they have been taught has apostolic beginnings by Paul through the way of Epaphras. That's important. The disciples of Jesus who became the apostles are who God entrusted with the gospel message. Every little group of people didn't just come up with their own version of Christianity. Sometimes I'll hear pe people who have no understanding of church history whatsoever will say, you know, you know what, Scott, in the church today, you know what, you go back far enough and every little group of people just kind of came up with their own version. No, they didn't. That's ignorant. God delivered his truth to the apostles. Our faith is built on the witness of the apostles with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. That's why the church in the book of Acts, it says they continue daily in the apostles' teaching. There's a definite body of Christian truth that God used the apostles in sharing and writing down our Bible. Why this is so important is because the false teachers at Colossae, they're just some kind of little rogue group that's come along, Johnny come lately's, and they're saying, oh, this is true spirituality, and this is, this is, this. The church at Colossae has been grounded in the faith that they were taught by the apostles that they got from Jesus, and here's this rogue group coming along and offering something different. And so what Paul is saying to them, you better not go that way. You need to be firmly rooted and established in your faith. That you, that you have been instructed in. So Paul's second admonition to them is that they have to remain firmly established and growing in the apostolic truth. Now the third word of admonition Paul has for them begins in verse 8. And what we see here, it, thirdly, is that Christians are to guard against the false teachings and systems of the world. Now, beginning in verse 8, going all the way through the end of the chapter, is the, is the heart of, of the book of Colossians, and it's the heart of this chapter. And We're not going to be able to go through everything in detail, but look what he says beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world world and not according to Christ for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority verse 8 represents a very dangerous a very real 
and dangerous scenario for people even today. People today who are taken captive. Here are false teachers who come along peddling their wares and their goal is to take you captive and these false teachers, what they're doing is they're peddling the traditions of men and philosophies that exist out there in the world and the picture is these false teachers are trying to capture you and by way of implication imprison you in deadly belief systems which can do absolutely nothing to reconcile you to the true and the living God again he reminds them that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ highlighter underscore verse 9 where he says there in verse 9 in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one essence. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Christ is fully God and fully man. And neither nature diminishes the other nature. Neither nature diminishes the other nature. As Amsam of Canterbury wrote, To fully represent God to man... Jesus had to be God and to fully represent man to God, he had to be fully man. He is the God-man, the second member of the Trinity. Folks, this is basic stuff to New Testament Christianity. It is also very important stuff. What he's telling them here in verse 9. Lest you think it's not important, lest you just think it's some kind of mumbo-jumbo that only preachers care anything about, this, this is critical to the gospel. And let me show you how much it applies to today. If you think there's no, there's, what application is there in this for us today? Let me show you. Saturday morning. On your door. Who is it? Jehovah Witnesses. They are big time active right around here in this area. They come through my neighborhood all the time. They are a cult. They have departed from the biblical truth. Members of the Kingdom Hall will visit your front steps. And they will deny that Jesus is fully God. They will say, yes, he's God's son, but he was not God the son. He's not fully God is what they will tell you. And and to try to convince you of that, look at verse 9 again. Keep verse 9 in front of you because verse 9 may be very likely one of the verses that they will read to you and try to convince you that Jesus is not the second member of the Trinity. They will pull out their New World Translation, which is a hatchet job, And they'll try to show you that this verse simply says that Jesus had some God-like qualities. Now think with me carefully for a moment. 
They will read this verse again in their New World Translation and they will say as it reads in in their Bible that Jesus merely had God-like qualities. And so they'll say, you're right, Mr. Christian. Jesus was godly. He was God's son. But the Bible does not say that he is God. Just merely says he had God-like qualities. And the unsuspecting Christian, just, just like they were doing to Paul's group, the false teacher, the unsuspecting Christian today can be sucked in. And dragged away from the truth. You see what they do is they change the word. The word in verse 9. The way we would spell the Greek word in English. T-H-E-O-T-E-S. Theotes. Theotes means just like what verse 9 says here. That in Christ the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. In other words... Christ is very God of very God. Now that's what the verse really says. Okay? But they changed the word. Their translation is based on a different word. They eotis. They add the little letter I, the Greek iota, right in the middle of the word. T-H-E-I-O-T-E-S. And that word just means that Jesus had some God-like qualities to it. One letter difference. You see the importance? Biblical truth is at stake. Now as I look around the congregation here, I hope I could say about all of you, you are theiotis. You have some God-like qualities about you because Romans 8 says we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. But there is no one here that I could point to and say that any of us are theotis. Very God of very God. Only Jesus is theotis. You say, well, well, preacher, surely there, there must be some kind of manuscript evidence why they changed that word. Let me assure you there is absolutely no manuscript evidence whatsoever why the JWs changed this word. In in your English translations at the bottom of the page, you'll have study notes in your Bible. At the bottom of the page in the Greek New Testament, there's something called the critical apparatus. And it's all these little scientific codes, all the manuscript evidence. You see, we have more than 5,000 available Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The, the originals were inspired the, the inerrant word, perfect word of God. We don't have the originals. We have copies. And sometimes scribes would copy things a little differently. There would be like a little one word different. Like in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, when John says, We write these things to you that your joy may be made full, you can look down at the bottom of the page in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and and see a little note there. It says, some translations say, uh, your. Some say, we write these things to you that your joy may be full. Some say, we write these things to you that our joy may be full. Some little minor differences in the manuscripts. And textual criticism has brought to us 
They, they've gone through all these textual variants, alternate readings, and we know that we have a Bible we can trust. We don't need to be afraid of textual criticism. It, it has, we have a Bible that we can trust and there is no issue, there is no doctrinal issue at stake. But, but here's what I'm getting at. You would think in some of the variant readings, if the word theotokos is changed and the iota is in there, surely there would be some kind of variant reading where that would be one of the readings. And the Jehovah Witnesses have just picked that reading instead of the other there is no manuscript reading that has the JW's word in it without any justification whatsoever they have, they have cut the biblical word out and they have stuck their word in that goes along with their theology you see how dangerous it is And people are drug away from the truth. And Paul is writing to them. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, you'd, you'd better be careful about this. You'd better know the book. And it exalts and magnifies Jesus Christ in any attempt to take you away from what you have in Jesus Christ. You need to run from because it is in Christ that you've been reconciled to a holy God and forgiven of all of your sin. He says in verse 14 here. And we've got, to, we've got to close. But in verse 14, there's some background you need to understand. In ancient times, when there was a debt to be paid, they would take the receipt and they would write across the receipt, tetelestai, paid in full, when you paid off your debt. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? Tetelestai, debt was paid in full. Probably, though, the reference and the image in verse 14 is a little different. The word canceling out is he's wiped away all of our sin. In ancient times, their ink didn't have acid in it. And so when they would write on a parchment or a vellum, an animal skin, the ink wouldn't set in. And, and to conserve parchment or vellum later on, they would come and they would wipe out what had been written and they would use that document again and write over top of it. He says here in verse 14, that's what Christ has done. He has wiped out all of our sin and the ordinances against us you are free in Christ and then in verse 15 he uses a great analogy too the Romans would conquer an enemy and they would capture the king and the commanders and the army and they would chain them together and they'd go back to Rome and they would parade them through the streets they would humiliate the enemy that they had captured and conquered and, and Jesus said uh, uh, Paul says this is what Jesus has done through his death, burial and resurrection with all of our spiritual enemies, Satan and his demonic powers and everybody that would take us away from Christ at the cross through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ he's given us complete victory and put on display anything that was against us folks that's good news that's the good news of the gospel 
You don't need anything other than Jesus. That's why he closes out the chapter by saying all these things, touch not, taste not, all these rules and regulations and days. You see, there was a Jewish element at Colossae too that was trying to get the church to go back to the Old Testament. He says, why are you trying to add to, all, add to what you have in Jesus? Remember what he said to the Galatians? If somebody comes preaching a gospel that's not the gospel that we preach, let him be anathema. It's no gospel at all. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And you are free in Christ. If you have Christ, I want you to understand this morning. Like these baptismal candidates who say now they have Christ in their life. If you've made public profession of your faith and you've been born again, you have Christ in your heart, you are free. And there is nothing that's going to be held against you uh, in terms of you not getting them to heaven. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus doesn't mean that you won't have to give an account of your life but there's nothing in your life that will keep you out of heaven if you are in Christ you have been set free the debt against you has been marked canceled that ought to make a Baptist shout and y'all aren't shouting any this morning <laughs> you're free in Christ Paul's saying to them, why are you letting these false teachers, on the one hand, there's some of them that are drawing you away from Jesus to all these modern day philosophies promoting some mumbo jumbo spiritual stuff without Christ. There's that one group at Colossae doing that. There's another group at Colossae that's trying to take them back to the old covenant with all the rules and regulations and laws of the old covenant. And Paul is saying, why are you listening to any of these people if you're in Christ, you're free? What he's saying to the church is, we've got to guard the gospel. Folks, please understand the importance of this. There is no other gospel. I want to ask you this morning do you know the truth? Do you know God's word? Can you spot a counterfeit? gospel in the FBI how do they spot counterfeits only by knowing the real thing I want to challenge you to be stable in your faith by knowing the truth over and over and over again as your pastor I have challenged you not to just read your Bible casually but to study it to know it the truth will set you free The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Don't be sucked in by modern day cults. They're out there and they prey on Christians because they will tell you they get a lot of their members from previous Orthodox churches. Why? How can they do that? Because we don't know the truth like we should. Make a commitment to growing and bearing fruit. On Sunday nights, we've been giving you discipleship material so you can grow in your faith. Take this. Go through it over and over again. We can give you other material to help you grow in your Christian faith. Grow and bear fruit. 
You and I are supposed to be growing and bearing fruit and giving testimony to a lost and dying world that Jesus Christ has changed our lives and that he means everything to us. Be knit together also in the body of Christ. We need each other. Don't be a lone ranger. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that it is in Christ that our, that our sin debt has been wiped clean and we are forgiven and reconciled to you. Lord, sometimes there are things out there that, that want to make us feel like we gotta, we've got to do something to add to it. And something about human nature, we want to be able to say, I did it, I did something. I contributed. But Lord, we know when it comes to salvation and our sins, we don't contribute. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Help us to rest in that. And I pray for that one who needs to come to Jesus today. I pray for that one who needs to make a commitment again to studying your word, to getting back into a church family and praying with other believers. Lord, help us to be solid and growing in our faith and on guard against all the philosophies of this age that would take us away from Christ. Lord, we read a chapter like this in the book of Colossians. And this is not a chapter that's locked in history 2,000 years ago. What Paul is talking about here, we face it every day because we run into people with competing philosophies to the New Testament. And they want to tell us this way or that way. God, help us to be bold and tell them about Jesus. So help us to be firm in our faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray.